Good morning again. I think it was about 15 years ago, I attended a Rohatsu Sushin in a little Dharma center in Bloomsburg, PA, Endless Mountain Zendo. And we, um, this was the same time of the year, and it was early morning, probably around 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, that we were doing outdoor kinhin. This was a very remote uh, Dharma center in the mountains in, near Bloomsburg. And it obviously was very dark out and we were walking through the woods. I think there were about 10 of us. And we were passing a lot of um, probably hunting cabins, but a very, very sparsely uh, populated area in the woods. And we happened then ahead to see a little red light. Otherwise, it was completely pitch black. And as we approached this cabin, it was a, a shack, really. Uh, nobody was there. But this red light was a star. It was a, just kind of a star. <laughs> I guess it was a kind of a Christmas star, <clears throat> but it was red. And it was the only thing in the window, but there it was shining in the darkness. And I remember being so moved by seeing this sight that somebody had put this red star in the window not knowing that these 10 people were going to be wandering by and that that star would somehow be so moving. What motivates somebody to do that? Well, to set something out for no particular reason except to shine a light in the dark. I'll never forget that image. And it reminds me of so many other acts of that sort. I think about the Buddha as being that star that shines in the darkness for us. Really just there for our meeting, not being a big blaring siren or like, you know, all the Christmas lights that people set out, you can't miss them. <laughs> <laughs> but this one was just one little modest red star in a window in a shack in the middle of the forest. And so 
I guess I, I want to dedicate my words today to those bodhisattvas who, like the person who, for example, plants a little garden uh, by the side of the road, which that person is, doesn't even live there, but is planting that just for the drivers who happen to drive by and see these beautiful flowers. Just a, a small gesture like that. These acts of the bodhisattva, and you know, now we're, we, we're so much uh, involved in big, dramatic gifts. This is the season of giving. And uh, there are so many ways, and we say this repeatedly, but I think we need to be reminded of these profound acts of generosity and gift giving that are complete, that don't require any recognition. It's just, there it is for you. It's setting it out there. And now I am basically anonymous. I, re I retreat back into, into the darkness. So my, my words are dedicated to all of you bodhisattvas uh, who uh, have gathered here and uh, are giving, giving without qualification. So this first talk in, the, in a series of four that I'm going to be offering is the first phase of uh, the Buddha's awakening process, which is often called the great renunciation. The great renunciation. Many of you have a little bit of a taste of the great renunciation. Um, some of us have given up a week have renounced a week of worldly affairs to be here and to carry on the Buddha's tradition of sitting, just sitting, <laughs> being available, just carrying on that tradition. You don't get brownie points for that. You don't particularly get recognition from your family. In fact, usually it's, what are you doing? What are you doing there? I should said yesterday, what am I doing here? <laughs> nothing. Well, not quite nothing, not quite nothing. The legs and the back and the neck, the neck are telling you that it's not nothing. So we've renounced some things uh, in, in our own way but they're genuine renunciations. So what did the Buddha renounce? And by the way, to examine this word renounce, it's a kind of a interesting word. It's not exactly letting go, 
it has a greater sense of deliberateness about it. I, I am renouncing something. I am not just opening to let something flow, but I am deliberately setting this aside and moving in this direction. It's not surrender either. Surrender is, has a kind of passivity to it as letting go does as well. Okay, I can't do anything about this. And just, I give up. That's not what Buddha did. He, he didn't give up. He made a deliberate choice that this is going to be set aside and I'm turning in this direction. It's, it's, it almost has a bit of a value judgment in it. Yeah. Renouncing something that isn't wholesome, that isn't helpful, that isn't nourishing. I want, I don't want any, I don't want to go that way. I'm renouncing that. And now I see on the horizon, maybe I don't know what quite is ahead, but I know that is not the way to go. And so I'm setting that aside. And very clearly and deliberately with full intention. So that is a renunciation. So what did Buddha renounce? I've been trying to get into this, into his story this week. Well, for the past couple of weeks. Because so often this is this Buddha's story is just kind of a blur. Uh, we kind of know what he did. It happens so long ago, and um, it has this kind of just a general set of features to it. But I I was really trying to enter enter his life, enter his way. Uh, what was he going through? And in that sense, to examine what I'm going through. So I said, is this my story? How is this my story? How is this your story? How is this everyone's story in some way? Is it? Can we really relate to it? So in his case, what was he saying no to? Well, fundamentally, everything, everything, his whole life. He was, could say, the ultimate spoiled brat. He had everything. There was nothing denied him. Central, I mean, he had nothing to worry about at all. The future was bright. Uh, he had all the central pleasures he could possibly desire. He had a, a bright future as a king, as a warrior. Um, he lived in a palace. Uh, yeah. He had it all. So what could have occurred to him 
to step out. As we know, he stepped out of the palace into the village, into, let's say, the ordinary world. What possibly could have motivated him? You've got it all. Just enjoy it. Where, where else is there to go? So I've come to the conclusion that Buddha suffered. He suffered. Something was missing in all of this. First noble truth, even Buddha suffered. Even with it all. I gotta step out of this. There's something, 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 something. I don't know. Do you understand this? There's something. I don't know what it is, but I gotta get out of this. This is. This is not the suffering of hand-wringing and bawling. This is the suffering that we go through every single day. Something's not quite right. It might be me, it might be you, it might be the conditions of my life. Something is not what it should be. And that is an imprisonment even imprisoned in the palace. So what, so it is, it is his suffering, oddly, that moves him. And this is my, I'm just giving you my understanding. You work through this story on your own, but I'm offering my particular way of entering the Buddha's being. Sometimes this moving out of the palace is described as Buddha's restless. <laughs> he's restless or he's curious. There's a kind of almost uh, accidental quality to some of the ways this, is, uh, this story is told. You know, he just happens to wander out uh-uh, I'm not buying that. There was something, something pushing him. And it was a powerful thing in order for it to break through that spoiled bratness, that kind of life that he lived, because it wouldn't have been anything other than a powerful drive to get him out of that perfect existence, right? I mean, it's, it seems perfectly clear to me that he was suffering in some way. And see, he goes out and inevitably he's going to see, he's going to witness old age, sickness, 
death and sort of someone who maybe looks like one of us in orange robes. He's going to see something that startles him. Oh, you mean there's a life? There are things happening that are beyond this perfect pleasure dome that I'm involved in? There are people out there who are not young and vital like I am, who are sick. You mean everybody isn't young and vital and has all these wonderful possessions and virility? And you mean there are people who are aging? I'm, I'm, I'm not, no. And dead people, all I see are these beautiful women jumping around and uh, these, I don't see any corpses. It's, this is just someone's dream of the perfect life. So he goes back, he goes back and forth. My understanding, this is, this is, you could say, the gearing up for renunciation. It's like going, putting my, I'm seeing this, okay, process that. That's new. That's, you know, yeah, I'm going to go that. And that's, that's new, and I'm processing that. And finally, it's, it's, it's I'm going to say, dawning on me that something, I have to do something, that the way I've been living is not the way I want to go. I've seen things. I've understood things. I've processed things that lead me to believe that this life needs to be renounced now. To look at the larger picture here, I'm, I'm offering for your consideration that this palace is the palace of the self. And that is, that is the palace that we've all constructed for ourselves and in which we live. We may not have all of the wonders and all of the pleasures and all of the possessions that Buddha had, but we'd like to. <laughs> We're working hard at decorating this palace that we live in whether it be all those um, uh, worldly possessions or our careers, our, our achievements, uh, all the things that we decorate that palace of the self. Uh, and we, we just get more and more decorated like a big Christmas tree. <laughs> Here we are, we live, we live, we live in this decorated being. And of course, what Buddha did 
when he left the palace, he cut his hair, gave away his robes, but that was just symbolic. Uh, the leaving itself was, was the significant act. So what he was discovering was, I think, you know, there are other people besides me. There are other things happening in the world besides me. You know, like a, let's say spoiled brat. And a spoiled brat, you know, is just all about me. And in some sense, yeah, we're all kind of spoiled brats. Wanting more, more spoils. Stuck in this palace and moving through the world as if everything in the world is designed for our experience. I'm the I'm the um, I'm the star of the show. This room exists so you can enter it. These meals are being prepared so you can eat them. They're for you. Uh, this, is, this is your house and everything in it is for your pleasure, for your use. This is your neighborhood and all of your neighbors are meant to be friendly with you and to share things with you. Oh, this is your town. This is your city. And you know it's your city because you get really irritated when the stoplight is red for too long because this is your city. And doesn't the stoplight know that you're driving and you're wanting to get somewhere and it's just not turning green for you. How dare it? Something wrong with the mechanism there because it isn't responding to your needs. Or you're standing in line at Trader Joe's. And doesn't they know that this is your grocery store? And why isn't it moving faster? Because you're there to buy groceries for your, for your dinner. And so we get irritated because things aren't. Now, yesterday, Taishan shared this story about being at the cashiers. That's your job, right? It's your store. And those customers were not treating you very well. How dare they? <laughs> Don't they know that that's your store? <laughs> and that you're there and they have to yeah, recognize that, right? But then you went in the back and you, you got right side up and you discovered, well, <laughs> you know, maybe there's more to this than just me. <laughs> so... One of the 
last things that the ego or this constructed self, this self that lives in the palace, one of the last things that it wants is to be anonymous. That will not do for the constructed self. We want to be recognized. Anonymous means without a, without a name, without naming anonymous. The Bodhisattva is fundamentally an anonymous being who sets red stars out in windows, makes meals for folks who are ill, who leaves things at your door without the name and recognition. And so Buddha Shakyamuni discovered that there's a world beyond self. So once you discover that, and sometimes we call that growing up, <laughs> because uh, the child knows only me, 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 me. And growing up is about becoming more than just a big baby. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, a, could be a real transition from being totally self-absorbed and giving yourself away because you see deeply that you yourself are empty of separation and connected with all beings. And so it's the most natural thing in the world. When that isn't happening, you suffer. Buddha suffered in that palace because he was not living out his true nature. And by the way, I'm saying his, erase that. <laughs> um, there's no his or her here. His, we just happen to be in the habit of his and hers. But Buddha is the awakened one is the awakened one beyond male and female, the awakened one. So he suffered because he wasn't connected to reality. And once he discovered that, he had a choice He could have shut down, just been in denial of what he saw. It's like when we, I don't, I don't want to look at that suffering. That's too hard. 
Or he could have, like many of us do, began to feel, oh, I'm so blessed. I'm so privileged relative to them, you know, kind of. It's what I call kind of finding comfort in other people's suffering. Like my mother always would say, you know, eat your carrots because of the children starving in China. I don't want to eat my carrots because those children are starving. That's not, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to live that way off of other people's suffering. But he did not choose to to shut down. He did not choose to run away from it, nor did he choose to find comfort in his own, uh, his own privilege. His heart was moved by what he saw. And he needed to respond. You could call this getting a sense of responsibility. One could say, I am responsible for the world. I am implicated in the world. I have a place in the suffering of others. I can do something. And so he. He did what it was very hard to do. A lot of ways in which this story is told is that one day after his son was born, he just decided, this is the time I'm getting out of here. Poked his head in to his bedroom, seeing his wife with his newborn child. So long, <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm on my way to my next adventure. <laughs> Who knows? Good luck. <laughs> Can you imagine choosing to be homeless? This is this was this is cho his choice. Choosing to be homeless and to leave the pleasure palace, to leave the palace of self, uh, to leave this wonderful, amazing life that he led. And in a way, the, the wife and the child are kind of symbols of the hardest things to leave, right? right? Especially, you know, we know some of us have had the pleasure of being mothers, Sometimes not so pleasurable, <laughs> but, but I mean, that's the first and also fathers and also brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts. It's the kind of first taste that you have of there's somebody else in the world besides me. It's like I've given birth to this being. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I have to. I have to deal with that. <laughs> um, I can't just let that being, you know, deteriorate. 
when you love something, when you care about something, you begin to understand there's something besides me in this world. And what do I do? How do I respond to that? And so I think it was very hard, not at all easy, for Buddha just to take off. I was like, <laughs> what am I, what am I, what am I doing? Looking at his wife and his newborn child. Whoa. And now I'm going into the unknown. And yet, and yet, there was something, something. Let's call it the Buddha in him. Let's call it the Buddha that wanted to manifest, wanted to become real, wanted to express itself. And it keeps pounding, let me out, let me out, let me out, I'm in a way, let me out of this palace. I want, I want to be let free. We call it the way of liberation. Zen, the way of liberation. Let me be free. Let me express who I really am. And not hide, not shut down. So he was able, and if we again look at this as a kind of a metaphor for our lives, The eight worldly dharmas, what we live by, gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and obscurity, um, winning and losing, all the certainties, all the things that we're, we're really, you know, this is, this is our life. These are the guidelines. We leave all that behind. We leave those guidelines behind. We leave the hiding behind and choose to step out of the palace of self and onto this path of liberation. It helps to have companions. It helps to have teachers. It helps 
to have teachings. But in the end, you have to take the step to leave it behind and embark on this something. And this is where our theme of trust comes in. It must have had, it must have taken a profound sense of trust to have left all that behind, to become homeless, literally. And we are just talking about the homelessness of leaving our fixed ideas, our mundane values. We're not talking about literally doing what he did, but renouncing some of the ways, some of the values, some of the guidelines that we hold so dear, that we live in, that we on some deep level know are not all there is and not even what is most important. And then to do it, that's, that's, that's the key. Oh yeah, I see this, I see it. I see the sights. I see the way people suffer. I see the way I suffer but I'm back in my palace once again. And suffering may be dull, maybe, maybe not, maybe temporarily, sporadically, but there is a way out of this suffering of something is missing. Something is not right. So I invite you singly and together as a Sangha to leave the palace and come to the Zendo. <laughs> <laughs>